and welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game and see if that story bites us bad. My name is Bill. This is episode 86. Thanks for listening. How have you been, everybody? We're rolling into fall. It's still pretty nice where I live. Thankfully, we're not in the path of a hurricane where I am. You know, my heart goes out to those who are. Hopefully, um, if any of you listening have had hurricane troubles, uh, hopefully you're staying safe. And uh, obviously you have bigger things to worry about than this goofy little podcast. But thanks for taking the time to listen, uh, if that's the case. What else is new in the world, guys? I read a little bit of Atari news, I guess, recently. I can't take credit for finding this story. Someone else in the retro gaming community posted this, although I can't remember who right now. But it caught my attention. Uh, A lot of you may have seen this article already. The article I read was from Armchair Arcade, with the headline, Blockbuster Memo Uncovered, Atari Plan to Incorporate ColecoVision Back in 1983. Someone on the Atari Age forums, Dutchman2000, apparently got hold of a lot of Atari-related paperwork and found a an internal memo apparently describing plans for Atari to use a version of Coleco hardware in their own products. The author of this article notes that Nintendo apparently talked to Atari about distributing their Famicom in the U.S., which later became the Nintendo Entertainment System, and initially distributed by Worlds of Wonder. The author notes that that information is pretty well known, but if they had if they had actually gone through with this idea of using Coleco technology in the Atari, it could have made Atari uh, in a contender, along with Nintendo, I guess, throughout the 1980s. They could have gotten beyond the the, uh, crash, I guess, if they had actually gone through with this. The internal memo notes that they are clearly the leader, in their opinion, uh, in the what they call the low-end game machine market, uh, meaning the 2600. At that time, they were not worried about Intellivision 2, which I guess I didn't know was a thing, competing with them, but they believe that Coleco is the dominant player in the mid-range market because they have greater production capacity better sound generators with compared to the 5200. They thought that with a little more time, they could beat out Coleco on those points as well. They were worried about introducing a new console that would overshadow the 5200 and turn customers off, but they did consider improving the performance of the 5200 by possibly wrapping a 5200 and a ColecoVision in the same package with a shared power supply modulator and some dual-ported RAM. They also considered uh, an external or internal enhancement to the 5200 in the form of another 6502 additional RAM and a small ROM. They think that the components of a ColecoVision are off the shelf, except for the operating system, so there was nothing nothing to prevent them from marketing a ColecoVision adapter, Uh, I guess because it wasn't proprietary technology, I suppose. They could go out and get the same parts themselves and make the same thing. The result would be... Uh, getting around copyright issues, and providing customers with a versatile machine able to play 2600, 5200, and ColecoVision cards. Obviously none of that came to pass. It would have been exciting if it had. I never really played ColecoVision. Uh, I knew it was out there as a thing, but I had my Atari 2600 and I was content with that, and then I moved on to Gasp, the Nintendo, and I just never really got into ColecoVision. This would have been interesting. I think maybe at the time, if I'd heard about, hey, there's this new machine that will play all these different carts, I probably would have been into that. You know, and who knows, maybe they would have been a rival to Nintendo. Ah, the mind reels. Maybe today, instead of uh, 
you know, Super Mario Kart 47, we'd be playing, uh, I don't know, Super Frogger Mr. Toad Wild Ride 83. Yeah, who knows? In other gaming news, I read a thing on atlasobscura.com talking about the largest permanent monopoly board in the world. It's located in San Jose, California, uh, the Discovery Meadow uh, in San Jose, near a children's museum in the Monopoly in the Park. It, it's called the Monopoly in the Park Board, the largest permanent version of the game in the world. It was built in 92 as part of an ex exhibition for the San Francisco's Landscape and Design Show, and it's made of granite slabs and covers 900 square feet in this park. Each of the massive corner slabs weighs uh, 250 pounds, while each of the regular spaces, while smaller, still come in at around 140 pounds. There are massive ornamental dice installed on the ground to complete the feel of being a Lilliputian who wandered into a giant's game night. The game apparently is entirely playable. They rent the board out via the website, and when you show up to play, you're given giant playing dice, playing dice and hats shaped like the various pieces. It's like that final scene in Harry Potter where they have to play chess for the for their lives, except it's, you know, Monopoly, quoting from the article. A banker, a coordinator, and an announcer help keep the game going, because, as anyone who's played much Monopoly knows, uh, the typical uh, game of Monopoly around the dining room table can take hours uh, if people are really invested in it. Uh, literally, see, it's a money game, I said invested. So they want to keep people moving in this live version, so they got handlers to take care of that. So if you've played on this huge Monopoly board in California, let me know. If you have pictures, even better. That's about all I got for news. We did get a little bit of feedback that I want to hit on before we get on to this week's game. It comes to us from friend of the show, Sean. Hi, Sean. He writes, Hey there, Bill. Listen to your latest episode on the bike ride to finding out I likely need foot surgery. Great listening. Sorry to hear about the foot surgery, Sean. Uh, but hey, if you do have the surgery and you're laid up, you have more time to listen to Atari Bytes. So, you know, silver lining and all that. Sean goes on to say, I apologize. I must have sent you a not-up-to-date conversation thread about Sharknado on the 2600. If you were listening, um, I guess it was last week or the week before, I had put a call out saying that I really want an Atari-style Sharknado game. And he sent me some information that I, I read, I think, on the last episode. A, a thread from the Atari Age forums talking about uh, this guy who makes carts with different um, you know, famous pop culture on the, on the cart, and he invites people to make games to go with those you know, those images that he creates, and then he makes you a, sort of a customized cart. And he had on there, it looked like he had on there a, a mock-up of a cart for a Sharknado game. game doesn't exist, I didn't think, but... Now Sean has, in, but as I was reading the thread, I realized it was actually from like 2014. So now Sean is updating what he provided, and he says, Now, disclaimer, I don't often look at the 2600 forum on Atari ages, it's just too dang busy. I love the 2600 and trying to build up the collection. Good on you, Sean. But I tend to stick to the 7800, arcade, publications, and off-topic forums, so I don't know how accurate and up-to-date my info is, but... Oh man, this is going to be good, Sean. Hit me. The Sharknado game actually did happen. What? I added the what? Sean says, if I recall correctly, though, the Sharknado lawyers found out... There's a lawyer joke in there somewhere. The Sharknado lawyers found out and came down on the developer, so he had to rename the game. It became 
Twister Shark. Don't know if it's still available, but here's a link to the for sale thread for the limited edition version. I just realized as I'm reading this email, I got this uh, a few days ago, I never actually followed that thread. I will do that now. Ooh, this is exciting. Could be like opening out Components Vault, though. Okay, what do we got? This is from... It's another Atari Age Forum thread. Uh, Neo Tokyo, 2001. Uh, looks like this was posted on April 13th of this year, 2017. Twister Shark, limited edition for the 2600. Uh, message me to buy a copy. State which version. I will reply with payment information. 55 uh, per copy plus 10 uh, USPS shipping. Now shipping. Everyone who entered sketches for the Sharknado Sketch Contest, all entries are in the 16-page manual with credits. So you get a game and a manual, apparently. A monstrous tornado unleashes ravenous sharks on the waterlogged populace. As sharks and debris rain around you, fly close enough to the twisters to toss bombs in so the explosions will equalize the pressure and neutralize the storm. Nope, that doesn't sound like uh, Sharknado at all. Sharknado lawyers, I don't know what you're talking about. This is the, this guy is saying, this is the rebranded Sharknado game. Gameplay is exactly the same. The original Sharknado game was made to be signed by Tara Reid. Then they have a picture of Tara Reid signing the game. Three versions are available. 20 copies of each. All three versions are boxed and have the same contents. Then he has pictures of all that. Standard is normal with a blue normal label. Two is gore, red bloody label. And that one was sold out as of April. Black uh, was a black label, and the game has a black background. Every game includes the same items. Twister Shark cartridge, 16-page color manual, a box, a mini comic book. Hmm, that's interesting. A shark tooth necklace, a shark plush, and limited edition numbered card. Oh, and a box protector. It has pictures of all that. It, they look really good. In the game, they have some uh, sc you know, screen captures of the game. Looks kind of interesting. Let's see. This was as of April, like I said. Be sure to join the Facebook group Atari 2600 Homebrew to get exclusive offers and reserve games before the general public. At that time, in April, it looked like they had sold all but maybe seven of the standard. It sold out of the Gore edition and had sold all but three of the Black edition. Ooh, and that was five months ago. I wonder if I can still get one. Hmm. I might have to think about that and see if I can, uh, if it's worth ponying up $65. Uh, to get that. If anyone has the Sharknado, sorry, Twister Shark game, let me know what you think. Hmm. Well, Christmas is coming. 65 is a lot of money to spend on a, an Atari cart, though. If anyone would like to send me Twister Shark, that would be awfully nice of you. Apparently, we're not above begging on this show. All right. Oh, hold on. Wait a minute. Sorry, Shark. Uh, I hear Sean waving. I see Sean waving at me from uh, from the back of the room. What? Oh, sorry. You had You had more to say. Please, proceed. Sean goes on to say, also a minor correction. I host the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. Did I say something different? Maybe I said the Atari 2600 Homebrew Podcast. Uh, if I did, I apologize, Sean. Um, I, I didn't intend to say that if I did, but I may have. That's what happens when you podcast drunk kids. Just kidding. Probably. Uh, Sean says, Ferg, hi Ferg, actually covers 2600 Homebrews on his podcast. The reason I'm doing the 7800 homebrew thing is that Phil didn't want to cover them on his podcast because he just wanted to stick with officially released and Atari authorized commercial games. So when his podcast ended, I kind of picked up the baton by traipsing into the homebrew territory. And one of the reasons I did that is because there aren't a heck of a lot of a 7800 homebrews. So I know I won't be doing it forever. But with, what, 600 plus games officially released for the 2600? Holy crap, is it really 600 plus? 
Criminy, I'll be doing this show until I'm in the old folks' home. I wonder if they'll let me sit in the uh, day room and, uh, you know, turn off Jeopardy so that I can plug in the Atari and do the podcast. Wow. What episode am I in now? 86? So I only got 523 plus more episodes to go. Is anyone else tired? I'm suddenly very tired. Anyway, Sean then adds that not only are there 600 plus games now, people are willing to program for the 2600 every day. Fur will never be done. Not that I'm complaining, I highly enjoy what he does. We all do, Sean. We all do. Ferg is awesome. Ferg is great. Ferg knows he's awesome and great. Just kidding. Ferg is a very nice person. And I know he appreciates all the praise that uh, he that we give him because he really deserves it. Sean says, really looking forward to the story with Trickshot. That, of course, was last week. I didn't get this email in time to include it in the Trickshot episode. Uh, but I hope you liked what I put out. Uh, he says, I remember my brother and I bought it at Toys R Us in... Matson, Illinois, near the recently demolished Lincoln Mall. We loved it. My dad would sometimes play the game with me. That's pretty impressive. Uh, my dad never really got into playing the Atari game. I think he would once in a while, out of, you know, polite dadness. Uh, he did like playing on the Intellivision, the baseball game. He would happily sit and play that. And then occasionally some of the, uh, like the blackjack, or poker games on the Intellivision. But the Atari, not so much. Wasn't really his thing. So... Uh, if you could get your dad to sit and play an Atari game, uh, that's pretty cool. Sean says, eventually I did figure out all of the one-shot trick shot solutions, so that was fun. Still love that game. I Like I said in the episode, I didn't really play around with the trick shot scenarios. I think they probably would be kind of fun, just haven't had time. And I think I said that uh, it probably wasn't a game I would ever love, but I probably you know wouldn't mind playing it once in a while. So that's it. Thanks for the email, Sean. And with that, we'll move on to this week's game. This week's game is... Now for your Atari 2600, M-Network Super Challenge Football and Baseball from Mattel Electronics. Video games that are so realistic, it's hard to believe you're playing an Atari. M-Network Video Games. They'll have a surprising effect on your TV. Super Challenge Football from Mattel, 1982. If you couldn't guess, this is a football game, guys, and it's for two players only. The object of the game is to outscore your opponent. No kidding. Did they really need that line in the manual? There's passing, rushing, blocking, and touchdowns. Simulate 15-minute quarters. You set both offense and defense. Individual control of both the quarterback and linebacker. This is two-player gridiron action. One player controls the home team. The other player controls the visitors. There are five men on offense, four linemen, and the quarterback. There's a five-man defense, a lineman, and linebacker. Sorry, four linemen and the linebacker. The team with the flashing ball has possession. If real football had a flashing ball, that would be cool. The field is regulation 100 yards. Each quarter begins on the 20-yard line. As a team moves downfield, the field moves too. The score, time left in the quarter, and first down markers are displayed during play. During the huddle, you will see downs and the quarter of play. There's passing, rushing, tackling, interceptions, and incompletes. No kicks! Exclamation point. I guess they're pretty emphatic about that no kicking thing. 
No out of bounds. Touchdowns count 7 points. Point after touchdown is automatic. 2 points for a safety. Check out all the stats during the huddle. Image of the screen. The quarter time is at the upper center of the screen. The controllers. Use your, use your joystick controllers with this game. Be sure the controller cables are securely plugged in. If you don't know that by now, uh, I can't help you. Oh, and of course, hold the controller so the red button is to your upper left. Before each play, when the teams are lined up on the field, program the four linemen. Before being programmed, each lineman faces the quarterback. After being programmed, each lineman faces the opposing team. Now choose one of the five running patterns and program all four linemen. Here's how. Push the red button without moving the joystick. Uh, that designates the actual pass receiver. Only, one, only program one actual receiver. Exclamation point. Push up, the offensive player will block upward. Push down, the offensive player will block downward. Push asterisk toward quarterback. The asterisk is here as a footnote to tell you push left or right depending on field position. If you do that, the offensive player will block straight ahead. Push toward the other team. Again, left or right depending on field position. The offensive player will go out for a pass as a decoy receiver. Before each play, when the teams are lined up on the field, program the four defensive linemen. Before being programmed, each lineman faces the linebacker. After being programmed, he faces the opposing team. Now choose one of the four defensive moves and program all four defensive linemen. Here's how. Push up, defensive player will rush up and then go for the quarterback. Push down, defensive player will rush down, then go for the quarterback. Push toward the other team, left or right, depending on field position. Defensive player will rush the offensive player straight on the rush, uh, straight on, then rush the quarterback. If you push toward the linebacker, the defensive player covers defensive uh, offensive counterpart going out for a pass. After all the offensive and defensive men have been programmed, uh, offense presses the red button to hike the ball. When the ball is hiked, linemen carry out their programmed patterns. Once the ball is hiked, control the quarterback and linebacker with your respective joysticks. To pass, once the ball is hiked, press the red button and the quarterback passes the ball towards the receiver. Once the pass is in motion, the joystick controls the receiver. Move him to complete the pass. Winning tips. A quick way to catch the ball carriers to run off one end of the field. You quickly reappear at the other end. This is useful when the linebacker is way behind the quarterback. Go off the screen and appear ahead of the quarterback at the other end. You know what? If, I don't know, uh, Tom Brady or somebody could run off one end of the field and suddenly reappear instantly at the other end, it would make football way more interesting to watch. Use directional blocking, up or down, to open up a hole in the offensive line, then run through it. Exclamation point. They're pretty liberal with the exclamation points in this manual, I gotta say. Program several linemen to go out for a pass. Remember, only one actual receiver. This fakes out defense. Well, no, it doesn't, because you just hold them. Jeez. Important. Be sure to turn your game unit off when not in use. Okay, thanks. All right. And that is how you play Super Challenge Football. GameFacts.com wrote that the only attempt at making a football game for the Atari 2600 by anyone other than Atari itself was this M-Network game which, without reading much more of the review, I can already tell he thinks is a better game than either of the two Atari attempts, being simply football, released in 1978, and the laughably named Real Sports Football in 82. He says those games were pretty poor attempts, and then this one came along. He notes that the game takes a, uh, the video game takes a complex sport and sort of pairs it down, gets rid of things like the kickoff and the punts and the field goals, and focuses on the basics, meaning blocking, tackling, running, passing, interceptions, and touchdowns. And in doing this, 
this reviewer thinks that the M Network succeeded with its football game in ways that the other games didn't. He thinks it's a disappointment that you can only play a two-player game on this. There's no uh, option to play against the computer. So being able to play it, not to mention the quality of play, depending upon finding a decent opponent. He gave it two and a half playables out of five. AtariHQ.com observed that Super Challenge Football, along with Atari's Real Sports Football, represented the second generation of 2600 football games and they strive to add more realism than what the originals did. There are more players on the field. You can individually program each player to perform a particular function before each snap of the football, which is a time when knowledge of workable strategy is a distinct advantage. Of course, the reviewer says, this is still football for the Atari 2600, so don't expect much complexity or realism. He thinks overall it's a respectable video game version of football, though the graphics are less appealing and detailed than in television NFL football. And I'll have to take the reviewer's word for that. He gives the graphics a 7, the sound a 6, the gameplay a 6, and an overall rating of 6. Retrogames.com, on the other hand, thought that the game was very realistic, containing almost all of the elements of a real football game. The only thing that's not realistic uh, about the game is that the teams have only 5 players on offense and on defense. Alright then, after the break, let's go out there and win one for the zipper. I mean the gipper. Or whatever you're supposed to say when you get ready to rush out on the field and play football. As a kid growing up, mostly what I said was, Man, isn't P.E. class over yet? Alright guys, just back it on in, put it right over here. That's great. Ah, so excited to have my new AstroTurf. I can put that with my Nerf footballs and the plastic cheerleaders I got from that one company on the internet and my fake football experience will be complete. Are you ready for some pretend football? I, your professional podcaster, am attempting to play both ends of the field at the same time. Buckle up, this could get ugly. Alright, so I'm going to attempt to program the play for the offense. I'm not really doing anything. I'm just moving the little guy to each of the four players and pressing the red button. I have no idea what the direction they're actually going to run. Now you got to do the defense. Okay, I think I'm pointing them all in the direction of the quarterback. Probably not. Yeah, I say the field looks good. It's a very realistic rendering of a football field. Uh, you have the uh, timer and the, uh, the yard lines uh, marked. So let's hike the ball and see what happens. Run, you turd. Oh, man. All right, let's try this again. Point them all thusly. Hut one. Hut two. Hike. Okay, so apparently my total lack of skill is only total for the offense. I have some marginal skill programming defense. Good to know. Alright, set up another play. Maybe I'll have this guy point that way. And that way. A one, a two, hike! No! Ooh, I'll bet that one caused a concussion. I will not be able to finish a sentence in 10 years. But hey, sports are important. 
Ike. Ooh. All right. Now the blue guys are the offense. Yellow guys, you mucked it up. You lost the ball. Well done. You're like Congress. You can't get anything through. Ah, political humor. In a football podcast, what next? Ike, run, turd. Not that way, you turd. Ah, fake out. It almost worked. It would have been really cool if it had worked. The old run the wrong direction ploy. Alright. Last play. Oh, come on, guys. And. Alright. Hit the showers. Don't forget your rubber ducky. Back to you in the studio. So here's the thing about Super Challenge Football. The game is fine, I guess. I have a pretty passive relationship with the game of football. I'm not a football fan. And it's not simply because of all the things you can criticize about football. The concussions. The fact that it's supposed to be America's game, but the typical American can't afford to go see a football game, professional game. The outsized emphasis that a lot of schools place on football. Did I mention all the concussions? The various scandals that plagued professional football. There's a lot of legitimate drips with the sport of football. But, you know, aside from all that, I'm just not particularly a fan. And I'm particularly not a fan of the minutia. I don't care about the stats. Uh, my eyes glaze over when you start talking about which way the lineman is going to run and blah, 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 etc., etc. I'm actually having time focusing on that sentence because the topic of calling plays in football is so boring to me. So, super challenge football, probably not the game for me. I can appreciate a good pass. I can marvel at a player running downfield to score a touchdown. I can do that and I can say, wow, that was pretty cool. And then I'm go, I'm ready to go watch Doctor Who or something. So that's kind of where I'm at with football. So maybe uh, I don't want to downgrade Super Challenge football. I agree with what the reviewer said to the extent that they, the, the game looks good. It looks like a football game. And I can certainly see where if you actually know about strategy, you could program these players. Although I think the whole you program them by moving the joystick up, down, right, left doesn't translate all that well because you can't necessarily see the results of that on the screen until the play is actually being run. And then, of course, it's too late at that point. So I don't know. I don't love this game, but, you know, take that, you know, review from a guy who doesn't really care about football. So take that for what it's worth. But you know what I do love about football? Sportsmanship. You know, where it exists, where, you know, the peewee football parents stay home and don't mess with their kids having a good time playing football. I appreciate, though, teamwork and inspiration and leadership and stories like the one I'm about to tell you. Team Yellow was losing. Bad. Not that this was new. Team Yellow hadn't fielded a good football team since Cubert, Crazy Legs, Simpson went to prison. The team was demoralized, dejected, and about to get its cartridge ejected from the game console gridiron for good. The team needed some inspiration. Short of that, it needed to have the 8-bit scared out of them. As if on cue, through the locker room door, 
well, really the wall, stomps the team's new coach. Ten feet of cold steel, it clangs across the concrete on feet the size of lawnmowers. The smell of freshly mown end zone hangs heavy in the air, mingling with sweat and despair. The coach's massive laser gun arms look like they could squeeze you to bits, then blast your bits into even smaller bits. A whistle dangles from the coach's mockery of a net. Atop this monstrosity sits the coach's human head, withered with age, to be sure, but very much alive. He is Newt Rockney, 2.0, legendary Notre Dame football coach of the early 20th century. And he is pissed that this team is losing. Or pissed about tur- being turned into an undying football machine. It's a close call. Scary as the spectacle is, the team barely moves a muscle. Ironic, as that's their problem on the field, too. Coach Newt 2.0 scans the room, literally. He diagnoses eight concussions, a case of hemorrhoids, and the start of some black mold in the east wall of the shower room. Then he speaks. Well, boys, I haven't a thing to say, Newt 2.0 says. You played a great game, all of you. A great game. An ear-rattling alarm sounds at this. Newt 2.0 slaps his right shoulder to quiet it. Well, mostly you just phoned it in. I guess we just can't expect to win them all, Newt 2.0 says. At least not until the NFL autonomy bill passes in Congress. He pauses then, slowed for a few moments by the drag on his Wi-Fi caused by downloading a big podcast file. Once the buffering passes, he speaks again. I'm going to tell you something I've kept to myself for years. None of you ever knew George Gipp. Well, actually you all knew him really well. But all the concussions have destroyed your memories. But George Gipp is a tradition at the irradiated wasteland that used to be Notre Dame. And the last thing he said to me, Rock, he said, then Banana, Jupiter, Koala, and Sprocket. The guy was really losing it. But that's not the point. Rock, he said, sometimes when the team is up against it and the breakdancers in the end zone are beating the boys, praying, sitting out the national anthem, committing gun and or assault related felonies, or awkwardly hosting Saturday Night Live. Tell them to go out there with all they got and win just one for the Gipper. That's at the Gipper on Twitter and Instagram. Newt 2.0 is rust stained with tears as he winds up to the conclusion. I don't know where I'll be then, Rock, he said. Disneyland, probably. Or maybe taping an infomercial for cheap insurance or diet supplements. There is a hushed stillness in the locker room, save for the eerie clicking noise in the machinery that passes for Newt 2.0's lungs. Everyone looks around at each other, but never directly at Rock, since, like the Eclipse or a laser pointer, you should never look directly into his eyes. Finally, when the silence is at peak awkward, Newt 2.0 says, All right, to his players, and beeps softly as he backs slowly out of the room. One of the players stands, tripping on his jersey, which is extra long because he insisted on his number being pi out to 500 digits. And he says, well, what are we waiting for? There's a roar from the players that they were waiting for Cappuccino. After that, though, they take to the field to win just one for the at the dipper. Next season, the whole team will move anyway when Intellivision offers to build them a better stadium. So save your breath. No, I don't have a thing to say. You've done the best.
best you could. You really have the best you could. You can't expect to win them all. But I want to tell you something I kept to myself through these years. I was in the war myself, medical corps. I was on late duty one night when they brought in a badly wounded pilot from one of the raids. Could barely talk. Looked up at me and Doc, he said, the odds were against us up there, but we went in anyway. I'm glad. The captain made the right decision. The pilot's name was George Zip. George Zip said that? Last thing he said to me, Doc, he said, sometime the crew is up against it. The brakes are beating the boys. Tell them to get out there and give it all they've got. And win just one for the zipper. I don't know where I'll be then, Doc, he said. I won't smell too good, that's for sure. Excuse me, Doc. I've got a plane to land. And that's our show. My thanks to Kevin McLeod and Comptech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Reformat, Take a Chance, and Pinball Spring. You can find Atari Bytes on many podcatchers. Stitcher, iHeartRadio, iTunes, Podbean, and... By the way, when you're at iTunes, you should definitely chuck a Hail Mary review down the iTunes field. Then, go play cheerleader to some friends. Give me an A. Give me a B. What does that spell? Well, nothing, because it's just initials. For Atari Bytes. Yay! Among other things, I was never a cheerleader. I had the skirt and the pom-poms, though. But that's a story for another time. You can also support the show financially at Atari Bytes' uh, Patreon page or by picking up Atari Bytes merchandise at Zazzle.com. It's the AB underscore pod underscore store, and links to all of that will be in the show notes. Check out our website at ataribytes.libson.com. Email the show at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com. Like the Atari Bytes Facebook page. Follow the show on Twitter at Atari Bytes, or follow me personally at Carnival of Glee. And also don't forget to check out my other show, It's a Podcast, Charlie Brown, for all your animated Peanuts gang needs. Got a hankering to relive your childhood by remembering your buddies Charlie Brown, Snoopy, Pigpen, Linus, Woodstock, the whole gang. Come check out that show. You won't be disappointed. New episodes drop on the 15th of every month, which I might have said, but it's getting very late and I'm tired, and so I don't remember if I said it. But it bears repeating, so I'm saying it again. New episodes drop on the 15th of every month. Please go check some of them out. Thanks. Next time on Atari Bytes. Pigs in space. I'm very excited about this one. I love Jim Hansen. So until next time, go play some old games. They've missed you.